Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This week's episode of Screen Talk, recorded live at the Kickstarter studio in Park City, is brought to you by Time Warner Cable. This award season, Time Warner Cable and IndieWire invite you to spend time with some of the year's biggest nominees in our Contender Conversation series. Just go to IndieWire.com and check out the award season spotlight. Each week, we're adding new exclusive video content featuring the filmmakers and stars between some of the year's biggest titles. Listen to Amy director Asif Kapadi explain how he made an Oscar-nominated film without a script. Find out how Simon Kinberg was able to convince Matt Damon to star in The Martian, a movie that eventually earned both of them Oscar nominations. And learn what it was like for director F. Gary Gray to work directly with Dr. Dre and Ice Cube on the Academy Award-nominated Straight Outta Compton. You can watch interviews with all of these filmmakers right now. Plus, you can watch all of these nominees and many more right from your home with Movies on Demand. Get ready for Oscar night with Time Warner Cable and IndieWire. everybody. I'm Carrie Putnam, Executive Director of Sundance Institute, and welcome to the IndieWire podcast here at the Sundance Film Festival 2016. I'm excited that Eric Cohn and Ann Thompson, two venerable observers of the indie scene, are going to be talking with you today about what their experiences of the festival have been. I think it has been uh, a very eclectic and exciting and amazing year. I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming. Of course. Give it up for Carrie Putnam, everybody. Thanks. It's amazing to hear anyone working at Sundance say such nice things after such a whirlwind of, of scheduling mayhem in the last few days. And we're all still trying to kind of get up to speed. It's been a, one long weekend, and there's still a lot more film festival to come. But we have so much to unpack from some of the smaller discoveries that we've seen to some really big buys. I think the best metaphor that somebody... Uh, made to me earlier with respect to, to the weather was that uh, uh, Amazon was burning enough money to keep everybody else warm. Uh, the, the big <laughs> sale out of the festival this year, so far anyway, was uh, Kenneth Lonergan's Manchester by the Sea, which went to a- Amazon um, for $10 million, which is a huge amount of money. And uh, it, I thought and it was... It bears very, very little resemblance to what its actual value might be in the conventional theatrical marketplace, even though they will take it out in some form, whether they go with Roadside again or, or whatever. But it, uh, that, the question is, they can afford to pay that $10 million and knock out the other uh, bidders. So what do we make of the, of, the, of the changes in the marketplace so far this year? I mean, there were a lot of pre-buys going into it. You have movies uh, ranging from Under the Shadow, this really terrific Iranian midnight film, which Netflix picked up for streaming rights, to something big like this and going to Amazon, and yet the more traditional buyers don't seem to be jumping at things or at least winning the bidding wars. Well, Indignation, the James Seamus movie that just played last night, there was a conventional overnight bidding war and Lionsgate and Summit uh, managed to pick up the movie uh, and in a more conventional theatrical universe. So it was James Seamus at the bidding table? I mean, he did not participate. He was being kept apprised and, uh, you know, weighed in occasionally, but uh, he didn't have to negotiate for his own movie. 
The other thing that I think is really fascinating about talking about the whole marketplace here is that it, it tends to hijack the narrative of quality. Like people hear about big sales and, and then they start talking about the big sales and then we forget whether or not these are movies worth talking about in the first place. Well, when I was here, um, I didn't see Manchester, so I was, I was of course doing an interview. This is what gets in the way <laughs> of seeing movies. And so my Twitter feed went wild. And, and so I was looking at what people thought of Manchester. I was, I was recognizing that they thought, loved a movie that made them cry, that moved them, that uh, demonstrated extraordinary filmmaking. You saw it. Do you think, do you agree with, with that enthusiasm? Well, what I think, so, so this is a movie from a filmmaker who's been around a while. It's, it's really only his third feature. You Can Count On Me was his first one, which was 16 years ago. Uh, but he's a very accomplished playwright, and it's, it's very much a playwright's kind of movie. He doesn't make, he makes very talky, very sturdy, mature character-driven dramas. I think Casey Affleck is great in it. Um, it it's, I, I suppose it works for that kind of highbrow sensibility that, that, a, that an older art house audience could go to this movie and get something that's both accessible and very rich as, 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 a, as a you know familiar kind of drama and, and he does that better than most is it a, something that I think it's gonna you know catch fire in a bigger way I mean that it's not my area of expertise to say that per se but but it doesn't feel to me like something that could be a phenomenon to me it reminds me more of what happened with Brooklyn last year a movie that was also uh, in the premiere section and, and did Pretty well. I, one thing we can say about Brooklyn is, it, while it's been a slow and steady uh, climb, um, at the end of the day, it's probably going to be the highest grossing film that was oh, premiered at Sundance last year. But it's about 10 years now since something like Little Miss Sunshine, right? When, when Fox Searchlight showed up here and, and bought that movie, I feel like there was this, this sense that movies like that, that, that can be just like really big crowd pleasers, can get swept up by, by a bunch of money and there's this expectation that they have to do well commercially in a very specific way. But now it seems like expectations are all over place. But I the mean. Amazon metrics are different and they have different, and, and Netflix of course, um, they have different um, goals. They're looking for eyeballs, they're looking for new subscribers, uh, they're competing with HBO and the other cable channels. It's a whole different uh, you know, universe. It's not the same. They, I mean, exactly. I mean, there, there are so many different priorities in play here. I mean, they may also just want to prove that they can get a movie nominated for some Oscars and if it takes $10 million to get through the door of the Dolby Theater, you know, and Bob Bernie doesn't have to prove that. Uh, he's done it. So uh, they've got somebody on board that can help them uh, get there if the movie is the right, uh, right movie for that. So um, the other movie that I loved, 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 um, and that my favorite so far is, is the a movie called uh, Author, the story of J.T. Leroy. And uh, it's a documentary. And we've seen other documentaries about this subject. But this time, Jeff Feuerzeig got Laura Albert, who actually wrote the J.T. Leroy books. And, uh, and, and this movie is just a fascinating onion unpeeling as we find out who this woman really is, what she really went through, uh, how she created all of these different characters and voices and, and created avatars and other people to uh, make them real. In, in, in the, in she, and the reason that she couldn't do it herself was because she was this sort of sad ordinary-looking, overweight girl 
who sort of instinctively understood that if she was the one out there, she was not going to be cool. I have to tell you, I, w- I was very skeptical watching this movie because it's the story of an unreliable narrator told from her perspective, right? We see her throughout this movie narrating the story, and we're with her perspective the whole time. So how much of this are we supposed to believe? All those audio tapes are real. Well, that's what they're saying. She was a pack rat. She, the, 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 the filmmaker who is a reputable documentary filmmaker. He made the devil in Daniel yeah, Johnson, yeah. which was here. He said that, he, that this woman was one of, has one of the great uh, storage archives that he's ever seen. And he had to go through all of the video, all of the... Uh, you, you recognize Courtney Love on there. You recognize this, you know, Gus Van Zandt. I mean, these are not recreations. These are real audio tapes from answering machines that tell the story a lot of the time. But there are still a lot of details here that I think are murky and, and worth unpacking. And what, what I think is worth singling out here is that irrespective of whether or not everything you hear is exactly how it happened in this movie, I don't, I don't position that as a knock against it. I think because it's about sort of the, these different identities, it, it plays with that and it kind of puts you in that world and lets you understand how she herself was wrestling with the, this sort of personality crisis, as it were. Well, you could argue that she had a real... I mean, she doesn't admit to having multiple personality disorder. What she wants to claim is that she's an author and that she writes characters and, in this case, took that to... You know, channeled these characters and took that to to another level. But what it also is about is the idea that women don't get the same respect as men and, and how do you create a celebrity that other celebrities are going to be drawn to and fascinated by. Now, the writing itself was what drew them, but clearly Samantha, the sister-in-law who played J.T. Leroy, was part of the equation. All right, so speaking of, of, of women sort of struggling to find their place in the world, let's talk about a movie that I know we don't quite see eye to eye on because that's always much more fun for us to discuss. Uh, recently, we both saw the new film from Kelly Reichert, Certain Women. So this is a filmmaker who has been at this festival since her first feature 20 years ago, um, and she's been, I think, remarkably consistent in terms of her style. Uh, movies like Old Joy or, or, or uh, Wendy and Lucy have this really compelling kind of minimalist approach to exploring American society. And even Certain Women, even though it's a bigger ensemble drama than some of her other films, I think brings that style to to that approach in a, in a fascinating way as it explores different characters' lives. Um, and I think it's really hard in a festival environment to parse the nuances of a movie like this. And I wonder if maybe that might be working against its appeal for some of the journalists who may have seen it already. Well, I will say that at the beginning of the movie, um, I believe it was... Was it Trevor who introduced this movie? Do you remember? Trevor Groff. Yeah. yeah, I think it was. He said, it might have been John Cooper, but I'm, I, I, whoever it was, they said that uh, this was the first time that she had been in the big house at the Eccles. And I'm not sure that was the right thing to do, honestly. I think I would have rather seen this movie in a smaller venue. And, and I don't know how to explain it to you. It didn't play well in that room. And it was too slow and to these very long takes, there was a lot of good things in it, and I understood what she was trying to achieve. But you don't have to uh, put the audience asleep to get there. (laughs) See, what you call sleep, I call energizing, but we just live in different worlds. Um, but, but I think actually that hits on a really interesting point about kind of the, how the, the Sundance Buzz can be very 
confusing in certain ways, especially if you're not here, because you hear about things playing well and things playing not well, and it doesn't always sync up with whatever the life of the movie might be. I mean, for example, another Echo story that came out in the last few days was with the, the hordes of walkouts to Swiss Army Man, this movie that uh, has a, a very particular narrative device that people have probably heard about involving flatulence and Daniel Radcliffe. Um, but it's totally surreal and, and very singular in its vision. I mean, it, people have compared it to a Michel Gondry kind of eccentric storyline, and uh, it's also a musical of sorts. There, there's all this great acapella stuff in it. I mean, there's a lot going on there. It just has one sophomoric device that threw a lot of people off. But the walkouts create a different sort of story around this movie than the number of people who stayed and actually liked it. And what I heard was that there was another screening of the movie late last night, and nobody walked out. So I wonder if sometimes you, you, know, you have to take these reactions with a grain of salt because... You know, just because a movie does, isn't necessarily working in a particular venue isn't indicative of some larger reception. And with all these buyers here, you know, how can they be, you know, manipulated? How do they see the, the truth in an environment that's so fraught with these different kinds of uh, possibilities? Well, you also have a wide range of audiences here. You have the, the locals, and, and there are a lot of them that are coming to these movies. And then you have the cinephiles and the media and the, the industry and the agents looking for talent. And there's a wide swath of, of tastes represented here. And uh, that's why I think when you get into the really big houses, you, 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 you may not be playing for everyone. All right, so moving away from the bigger movies, are there any discoveries that you're particularly excited about so far this year? I know I've got a laundry list. <laughs> I'm not going to say that uh, Werner Herzog is a discovery, and uh, I'm not going to say... I, I would say that Don Cheadle's Miles Ahead, which I finally caught up with, while it, it, it is a poetic and lyrical and delightful approach to uh, Miles Davis, you know, very fictionalized and not exactly what anyone would expect from a biopic, and I think that's to its credit. And it's a first film, you know, not entirely polished, and I really liked it for being rough around the edges. I would single out a movie called Dark Knight from Tim Sutton, who's a filmmaker who was here before with a movie called Memphis. Uh, he's really fascinating. Another, another minimalist of sorts. Uh, and, and this movie kind of deals with the Aurora shooting, although it's set in uh, Sarasota. And the way in which it kind of builds up to that massacre and at the same time it's kind of building away from it by exploring the day beforehand is something I never really considered before, just as this creative concept of, of, of playing off of your understanding of an event while at the same time, you know, kind of filling in a lot of the different details. And I don't know if it's a movie that's it's going to win a lot of people over, but there are certain people who are, who are really receptive to that kind of style, like the same people who like Kelly Record movies. And uh, I, I, I think it could find that audience as it keeps playing around. I'm a huge fan of, of Wendy and Lucy. I, I always loved that, and I'm also a huge fan of uh, uh, Meek's Cutoff, which is a western that Kelly Reichert made. So I'm 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 not uh, I'm not a someone who's out to get Kelly Reichert. But I will say that the uh, other thing that goes on here is talent discovery and the movie uh, Slight by J D Dillard. Uh, that's a talent. That's somebody that we're going to see uh, again. And in Indignation. Um, the uh, actress Sarah Gaydon, who I've been a fan of for a while, totally breaks out, and so it's fun to see. It's it's fun to see people who have been doing fine work and sort of you know moving along finally get their due. And let's not forget about Caitlin Scheel, who, if you've been following movies in this scene for a while, you've probably 
caught her before, but she's in both the Stars TV series, The Girlfriend Experience, which is previewing here, and this, this fascinating kind of meta documentary, Kate Plays Christine, which I loved, but I know is dividing people in some really great provocative ways, dealing with the same situation that's in the movie Christine about this newsacre who committed suicide, uh, but it's more about her reservations playing that character, and so it is about her strength as a performer, um, and it's one of the more original movies here. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the the thing that, that I love about Sundance is that you can both get the kind of larger stories about where the industry is heading and what people think audiences want, and also kind of look around for the things that audiences may not know about unless people go see them here. And so finding that balance seems so crucial to the identity of the festival. And of course, as we walk around, uh, one of the stories that's been playing out in the media uh, ad infinitum and not going away is the whole diversity issue that uh, the Oscars uh, were, had to deal with uh, last week. And it, it's continuing to play out. And, and it's interesting to be here and see that all these initiatives, uh, you know, is trying to support women, uh, the incredible diversity of the product that's here and the people who are attending. Um, and it's, it's a sign, you know, that from the ground up, and certainly with younger generations, uh, we're going to be fixing this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at some of the movies that are playing well here, like Morris from America, which was one of the earlier competition titles to screen, this really fascinating tale of an African-American kid living in Germany and sort of alienated from these people. I mean, it's, a very, it's in some ways a very formulaic coming-of-age story. But we've or never, a fish out of water. Yeah, but, exactly, but it's got... This, this kind of character we've never quite seen in that scenario. And A24 just bought it. They're kind of hitting their stride with all these Oscar nominations. So that's the kind of movie that could really go from this festival to being a bigger thing and maybe sending more of a message that there could be more movies like this. And certainly there are the more you look at this lineup. So should we get some questions? Let's hear from the audience. You can ask anything Raise you want. Raise your hand if you have a question. <laughs> we'll start in the back and work our way up. Just wait for the mic so we can get you on, on the record. So you guys uh, just talked about diversity a little bit. Do you think, I, I think a lot of the films that I've seen here brought up this uh, thought that there's more original content here than, say, in the, in the industry right now where they're looking more towards pre-existing IP and biopics and things like that. Do you think that has any effect on, uh, on, on how diversity can kind of uh, be... Uh, the diversity of cast, at least, could continue uh, to, to grow. I think part of the problem with Hollywood right now, and we have an article being written uh, over at IndieWire that sort of uh, reminded me of this, uh, you know, this whole notion that you have the very, very big, big movies and then all the very small movies in the middle is missing. And a lot of the places in Hollywood where you would have more experimentation, more original comedies, more um, diversity would come and, and filmmakers could be rising up if there was more flexibility in production in that in that middle arena. And a lot of the stuff that goes out overseas is, is aimed at that market. And that, that's where a lot of those mid-budget films come. And of course there are all these assumptions about what does and doesn't play overseas. And, and so it's sort of a self-perpetuating system. Right, but I mean, the other point that you're making is it's, it's a global problem. It's not just a Hollywood problem. And, and so the rest of the world needs to realize this too, not just Hollywood and certainly not just the Academy, which has done its part to try to, to address it at this point. Another question right there. Given that the narrative of the festival so far, um, in terms of at least acquisitions, has been 
uh, the surge of Netflix and Amazon, the streaming services, and uh, how cautiously the big studios are playing it. I mean, could we possibly be entering a landscape where you come to Sundance to see these movies in a crowd, and then otherwise you're pretty much watching them at home? I'm afraid you're absolutely correct. Don't be afraid. (laughs) No, I I believe in the theaters. Uh, I think there's a way to do this. I just came from the Art House um, Convergence, which is a really cool... um, they're the people that got involved when um, the Seth Rogen movie, The Interview, was was being taken out of theaters, and they it was this sort of all the art houses that ended up uh, picking up that movie and playing it. But um, they there basically there's a lot more uh, alternative programming that's going into theaters, and there's ways that they're going to stay alive, and ways that they're going to show 70 millimeter or whatever they're going to do. Um, but it's not going to be just the movies from Sundance that go there, and a lot of the movies that you're seeing here are going to end up um, being streamed and going on to VOD in various ways, and that's just the way it is now. I think if you take the long view also, like the identity of the theater is changing, right? I mean, I know a lot of great places in New York that now are, are their business model is based around having a bar or a restaurant or something like that, and the idea that you need to have some sort of big theatrical release for your movie? Well, in some cases, that makes sense, and there's an infrastructure for that. There's a whole industry around it. Other movies don't stand a chance because they're just really hard to get people in in the theater anyway. So this idea that certain movies might get to these platforms right after their premiere, I think is very positive for the kinds of movies that I like, which Anne loves to call artfully arcane, because... Those things, I mean, if, if somebody spent a lot of money on them and tried to put them in theater, they'd be wasting everyone's time, including the filmmakers. But I remember seeing this, this movie, The Comedy, here a few years ago, another one that had all these walkouts, right? But then when it, ran, it showed up on Netflix and there was just that play button sitting there, gradually it started to develop a different kind of fandom. And that, and that, that made me realize... You know, you, ha- you see so many different kinds of movies in an environment like this. If that audience is out there for a certain kind of movie, let's say something like Swiss Army Man, who cares if 50 people walk out if, you know, 5,000 can watch it at home, you know, a week or two later? So, I mean, to me, I'm very excited about just more of a diverse marketplace for these things because there's a lot of diverse stuff that, that needs to be seen. The other thing that's certainly breaking here um, is, is at the New Frontier uh, where lines of people are just snaking around. And, and we in the media are trying to, you know, get, you know, how can we skip the line and get in and see some of these uh, movies? A lot of it is the VR stuff, it's, and it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I, Redford talked about this a little bit in the opening press conference, how he, he's not sure it makes sense to have an actual headset, that there's one step that needs to be taken still with that technology to make it a little bit easier. I've toyed around with it a little bit, and I'm looking forward to checking out more of it at New Frontier this year. But what I'm really curious to see is when somebody figures out, you know, what are the rules of telling a story in this technology? Because there's been a pro- proliferation of this stuff. And 10 years ago, when New Frontier started, it was it was kind of this, this tiny, weird thing on the side, and now it's this whole phenomenon, but I still feel like we don't know how to talk about it. It's fun. People are exploring, and they're exploring all the different aesthetics uh, of, of the genre, if you like, or of the format. You know, they can, you can have a concert movie, or you can have the kind of experience where you're crawling around along a wall, <laughs> afraid you're going to fall into the abyss, you know, which is not my idea of a good time. Oh, I thought you were excited about that one. Who knows, maybe a year from now, Amazon will spend $10 million on some headset experience. Let's take another question. It's kind of jumping back to the um, Oscar and award season contenders. I'm just curious what your take is. I mean, you talked about Brooklyn. It did fantastic here. It got a lot of buzz. 
But then, I mean, this is happening in January, and award season really doesn't kick off until September, October, November. If you guys can talk a little bit more about how you think movies that have success here or the smaller ones that have success here can get the acknowledgement that they deserve come award season when they've got nine, ten months. Well, the way that that game is played a lot of the time um, is that even if it waits until the fall, to, it, they hit a whole other series of film festivals so that it's, it's almost like you know a, a, an amplification and a revision of, of what happened at the first one. And then the fall film festivals, that's what happened with Brooklyn, become the launch pad for the awards campaign and the release. Yeah, and, and the documentaries, I mean, Cartel Land is currently nominated for Best Documentary, and that started here. And I remember their first screening at Sundance was like 9 a.m. or something like that. And the word of mouth built very slowly for that movie, but uh, it was a partnership because The Orchard picked it up for theatrical distribution, A&E did the broadcast. And so there was this convergence of forces that brought this movie back into the conversation in a bigger way over the course of the year. Catherine Bigelow got involved, and so... One, step by step, you kept hearing about this movie in different ways. Near the IndyWire, the current IndyWire office on Broadway and Lafayette, there was a big billboard that went up just a, a, a few months ago, and now it's nominated for an Oscar. So Sundance may be the start of possibilities for award season, but people have a long year of work ahead of them if that's what, really where they're going for. So, All right, one final question. James? From our publisher, James Israel. Better be good. <laughs> Speaking of awards season, what's your take on the big short winning the PGA? Oh, boy. <laughs> had to go there. Sorry. There is um, uh, a three-way race, or there was, okay? There was a three-way race, I thought, uh, between uh, the movie that got the most nominations, The Revenant, uh, which where Leonardo DiCaprio is most likely to win Best Actor. And then you have uh, the big short, which like The Revenant, opened late, so it has a lot of momentum behind it. And then you have Spotlight, which was the early front runner. And sometimes being the early front runner is a bad thing. And sometimes, and although Spotlight did very well, you know, it got a lot of nominations. So I think that the problem, though, is that it may be a little bit like um, last year's Boyhood, in the sense that it's a, a kind of a small indie movie without a lot of of the branches of the Academy necessarily voting for it, except for liking it. It's not going to win a lot. He would have to win maybe screenplay and best picture and, and maybe nothing else, which would be very strange. It doesn't happen very often. Um, and so the big short starts to look stronger because the PGA tends to be predictive. And if you win the PGA, you tend to win best picture. And I will suggest to you that SAG uh, which is the next big award show, might go to the big short. And if it does, that will be the Best Picture winner. We didn't really see this coming months ago. It was completely no, people like to day. remind me that I was skeptical of the big short because it's a comedy, because it's such a raucous, broad sort of, you know, wink at the audience, put Margot Robbie in a, in a bathtub kind of comedy. And the reason that it is overcoming that is because it is so serious about its actual intentions. Well, in any case, there's a lot of other movies worth talking about that have nothing to do with award season. So why don't we get back We're to We're on vacation. <laughs> a sleepless vacation, as it were. <laughs> Many right. deadlines await. Thank you all for being here in, in the midst of all this craziness. And thank you, Kickstarter, for having us. But wait, there's more. So it's been a couple of days since the last time we spoke when we did that live recording up on Main Street. And the biggest deal... And Sundance history took place not too long afterwards 
when we finished recording, you dashed off and to see The Birthland Nation, uh, the Nat Turner story from Nate Parker, which got this massive standing ovation and within 24 hours landed this massive deal with Fox Searchlight for a little over $17 million, actually less, according to the reports that are out there, than Netflix offered, which was $20 million. So, as we predicted, the Netflix-Amazon effect is in full force. And it's interesting, I asked James Shanus, whose movie sold also uh, Indignation uh, to Lionsgate, a more um, conventional distributor, and he thinks that we're still in this kind of halfway transition. I see us being farther along. I see this real divide between movies that are played to an older theatrical audience and be distributed <clears throat> by the conventional theatrical, often studio-affiliated distributors, and this new world of uh, streaming and closing down windows. Uh, and Amazon has a month between you know when it opens and when it hits uh, VOD, and Netflix tends to be day and date. And obviously, the filmmakers in this case have their eyes on the Oscar Prize, which means that Beasts of No Nation, which did not land in the Oscars for a uh, story set in Africa uh, with an all-black cast, mm -hmm. uh, Beasts of No Nation, uh, maybe they didn't have the argument that Fox Searchlight had saying I took, they took Beasts right. of No Nation, uh, they took uh, 12 Years a Slave all the way to a Best Picture win. And so I, I was there. I got there late because I was running from the podcast. I stood through the entire movie. I wasn't worried about that. It didn't, I was totally engrossed, you know, shifting my weight a little bit, but I was not surprised when the entire audience rose to their feet yeah. and stayed through the entire credits. And then he brought everybody who worked on the movie onto the stage. And the other thing that struck me about Nate Parker, who gave up, uh, you know, he worked on this for seven years, he gave up acting for two years to make sure that this movie got made against a lot of, of opposition uh, from people saying, you know, this movie uh, won't play overseas, that kind of conventional wisdom. Well, uh, if Searchlight exceeded their $15 million cap, paying 17.5 to get this movie, paying more than they ever would have because of the competition in the marketplace. They believe that it would do well at the box office, and I think they're right. Well, I think the, the thing that's so compelling about The Birth of a Nation is that when you see the movie, and I think a lot of people are going to, it's not that it's breaking any rules or doing something you've never seen before in terms of how it tells the story. It's, it's more particularly that it's this story. Right. That there are so many tropes that have been used in the service of white narratives here that are being sort of reappropriated. And the, the most obvious point of comparison being Braveheart, there's a, a shot that looks like something out of Braveheart in this movie. And it really does seem like he's reclaiming that. And so while, while I don't think that it's, a great piece of filmmaking. In some ways, it feels very old-fashioned in terms of the way the way the story unfolds. I get that it's rousing, and with the controversy around the need for greater diversity in Hollywood and so on, it's being empowered by that. It's in the zeitgeist. But I think the the distribution question is, is part of that as well, because the distributors want to figure out who's best, who can, how can they capitalize on this conversation? And Searchlight knows what they're doing in that respect better than. No any question. of these other folks. And yeah. it, so it's, I don't think it's just that, you know, 
Netflix does a day and date kind of a thing, and nobody watched Beast of No Nation in theaters and all that kind of thing. It's it's that the story around Twelve Years a Slave was strong, but you have to remember that was a Steve McQueen movie. It was it was an art film that happened to have a certain kind of access point for people and spoke to certain issues that excited people. This is a historical narrative that I think is at, is is much more accessible, and so that it's a crowd it, It's bigger. Let's not put, let's not put too far. You know, this is an accessible, conventionally uh, told. Uh, as you as you say, it it gets you really worked up about what these people are going through and how and and they rise up and they fight their oppressor, and that's where you get the Braveheart comparisons. But they go to war. They go. They they become warriors. Yeah, I think and it's that a, is so different, right. from the kind of victim slave narrative that has dominated most of, of, of this conversation in the past. And, and it's a good, it's a good thing for our culture. I think I, I like I said I don't want to be the naysayer who doesn't love this movie. I, I think that it's a statement, and in that sense, the polemical value of it is is, is more valuable than the movie. And I'm glad it'll get out there. Maybe it'll fuel other kinds of movies. It's also worth noting that just the diversity question at Sundance this year has been very well addressed all across the board. I it's mean, been a diverse Sundance, yeah. no question about it. Morris from America, The Fits, everywhere you look you see different skin Light. tones and, 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 and cultural experiences. And so, you know, maybe there's something about the alternate nature of this marketplace that could be sort of working its way up to the mainstream. Well, and I we think have this is a generational thing, and, and I hope that's true. I mean, even just walking around, seeing the movies... And, being on the street, you just recognize this is a, this is this the Sundance world is not a white world. It is a very diverse world, and the women are very well. I've never seen so many events having to do with women at Sundance: brunches, lunches, dinners, uh, photographs. It's been it's been heartening. So the next step is let's not call them women panels and women brunches. Let's just have people events and, and get together and hang out and not worry about those things. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself because uh, you know any kind of step in the right direction is showing us that, that there's some kind of progress going on. By the way, Equity sold uh, to Sony Pictures Classics, uh, produced, written, directed, starring women. You know, the, the one guy, it was, it was an interesting reversal because you saw at the, at the uh, screening, you saw all the women lined up and one guy who, who was the uh, <laughs> actor, James Purefoy. It was funny. In any case, there's still a few more days as we're recording here, and, and we don't know what could happen at the award ceremony, and, and we don't know if there will be any other last-minute deals before the festival is over, but uh, certainly we've seen a lot of stuff, much of which has sold, and we'll get out there, and we'll have many more opportunities to talk about it in the uh, months to come. So, Sayonara. Let's get to it. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.